Alright boys and girls, good morning. Anyways, we got this uh, this cast iron pipe. Look at that. That's going. It's going. It's gone. Hey everyone, it is episode 44 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. This is your host, Sean. There, I just wanted to do a quick intro there. So, anyway, I hope you're all doing okay. I'm getting slowly, slowly, slowly better. I actually was able to get on my bike and ride, wow, a grand total of 27 miles this past Saturday. And uh, that's the first time in probably a month, if not longer, that I was actually able to last more than a few minutes on a bike. So, I'm glad I'm making that kind of progress. I still got the uh, neck and shoulder and sometimes tingly left arm pain, but it's getting better. It's getting better slowly, but most certainly surely. Most Isn't that redundant? Uh, oh, well, who cares? But anyway, uh, later on, I got a couple of obscure-ish homebrew titles to uh, uh, discuss. Obscure-ish, but very unusual in terms of the style of gameplay and personally a style that I highly, highly enjoy. And I just really hope these games somehow get released on a cartridge. In the meantime, I guess I'm stuck with this Mateos cartridge that I can use with it. Oh, well, oh, I know how I can kind of uh, exploit the seemingly necessary intro segment of a podcast. I met one of my musical heroes recently. In my previous burnout episode, I talked about how in 1986 I got into the Monkees, and yeah, I still love the Monkees. I love their music. But the thing is, whenever the Monkees would go out on a tour in 1986 or later, it seemed it would just be Mickey Dolan's Peter Tork and Davy Jones. Very, very loudly missing would be Michael Nesmith. It's a shame that you just wouldn't get to see those four together, except on a hugely rare occasion, it seems. But Mike was the main guy in the group who fought to get the Monkees some artistic freedom. Because remember, this band was not really a band. They were four people hired as actors to play a band. Yet their first single shot up all the way to number one and was a huge success. And their first two albums pretty much dominated the chart for well over a year. And people in the industry were ticked off about that. It's a TV show. These aren't real musicians, even though technically they were. <laughs> they all had their own musical talents. They all could play instruments, but they didn't on their recordings. They used uh, session musicians, which was one of Mike's big pet peeves, too. Like Mike and Peter showed up with instruments for their recording sessions, and the producer said, Oh, it's already recorded. All we need is your vocals. So they had that stuff to answer to, and Mike was the big driving force. There's the famous story of uh, how at a gathering at, I think it was the Beverly Hilton, he got mad at Don Kirshner, who was in charge of the, their music. Their music. He was the one who made the decisions as to whether or not they got to play their own instruments, etc. Mike did get a little bit of his way. He was allowed to, uh, he was also a songwriter. He had sold a few songs by that time. And uh, he was allowed as a compromise to write and produce one song per album side. But they still had to answer to all this pressure from their peers. You know, why Why don't you play your own instruments? Why are other people playing your instruments? You're not a real band. 
at the Beverly Hilton one time, the famous story is that Mike got so mad at Don Kirshner that he turned around and put his fist through a wall. And he looked at Don Kirshner and said, that could have been your face, mother fire trucker. Well, he didn't say mother fire trucker, but I want to keep this uh, clean. But long story short, there was something that Don Kirshner did that got him fired. And the people who were left in charge said, well, you guys want to do your own creative thing? Now's your time. So they did. They actually did become a legitimate, real, honest-to-God band. And they were playing their own instruments for uh, their third album called Headquarters. Headquarters was just them playing their instruments. Uh, Mickey on drums. Mickey was not a drummer. He was a guitar player. And the session recordings show that because he had to do like 70-some takes on a lot of the songs they did. Uh, Peter on bass, Mike on guitar, Davey on tambourine. So it was basically what you saw on the show was what you got on the album. And they used some session musicians for additional stuff like French horn, piano, and things. I don't know. Maybe one of them might have played piano. I don't know. But still, the fact is, though, when I was old enough to enjoy the monkeys, they wouldn't tour together. And so I'm thinking, yeah, I'm never going to get to see Mike Nesmith. I didn't realize that it would actually be Davy Jones would be the one that I'd never get to see because he he died before I ever went to a monkeys concert ever. But still, 2012, I remember Mike posted on his Facebook page. He said, I have some pretty exciting news to share, so keep watching this space. And then he posted the exciting news. The exciting news was that he had just made a gazpacho that turned out really, really, really amazing. And he went to this extreme detail about the ingredients he used, his experience eating it and everything. And he was just so proud of himself. And then the last line of the post said, oh, by the way, Mickey, Peter, and I are getting together for a tour. (laughs) And so people are just going nuts. This was, I think, 2012. So I got to see Mike in concert finally with the monkeys, and it was awesome. Got to see the three of them again a few years later. Saw Mike in a solo show at the Old Town School of Folk Music, not terribly far from where I live. And he was doing another tour this year. In fact, as I record this, he's still in the midst of that tour. And it was called First National Band Redux. And the reason he he was calling it that was after he quit the Monkees and bought out his contract with them, he wanted to do his own musical things. And he got together with uh, this guy named Red Rhodes, who's an ace steel guitar player, and his friend John London and another John, I forgot his name. And he called the group the First National Band. And they did three albums. And uh, First National Band kind of has a cult following, even though they weren't a huge success. So the reason that this tour was called First National Band Redux was that most of the music that he was performing was by the First National Band. He was the only original member of the First National Band there. Cause, well, sadly, two of them are gone. But he gathered together the best musicians he could find for his tour, uh, including two of his sons. And something he's been doing recently in his solo shows was there was also a separate meet and greet that you could buy a ticket for. Because his logic was, well, all these people are coming to see me and they know about me, but I want to know about the people who are coming to see me. I want to know about them. So he likes to spend a couple of minutes with his fans and, you know, get to know them. And my wife has been a big Monkees fan also since 1986, and she actually has autographed singles from 
Peter Tork, Mickey Dolenz, and Davy Jones. And she just never thought that she'd ever have a chance to get Mike Nesmith's autograph. So she figured, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about that. But then when we found out that Mike was doing a meet and greet, she said, yeah, we're, we're going to do this. The only thing is meet and greets are not cheap. Although Mike's is probably by far the least expensive of the ones that I've seen. But because they're not cheap, my wife said only one of us can do this because we just don't have the money for both of us. And she designated me to represent the two of us in the meet and greet. She said, number one, you're more first national band literate than I am. Number two, I know there's just no way I'm going to be cool about this. I am going to I'm just going to lose it if I get to meet him. Which, I don't know, she was okay with Peter Tork, uh, even though she insists that she was not cool at all. <laughs> and um, she somehow managed to hold things together when we got to shake hands with Brian Wilson. Well, yeah, half hour later, she was a crying mess. But <laughs> still, she said, no, you're going to be the one doing this. I'll give you the record that I want him to autograph. All I ask is that he sign it. Anything else, I don't care. Because she also handed me a, a very brief note to either give to him or something that I could like use as my own notes just to let him know how it was the monkeys that uh, that helped her get through uh, going through her parents' divorce. So there was something about Mike's personality. Because I was in line in the classroom at the Old Town School of Folk Music where they gathered us all in for the meet and greet. But there was something about him. He walked in and he just kind of looked around and he said, Hi, everybody. And just the way he said that, I could almost physically tell that everybody in that line was suddenly very, very calm, very cool. And I watched him talk with people and they got to his table and he had this way of making everybody feel comfortable. And I got to tell you, I don't think it's possible that anybody could have been nicer than he was to everybody who came to, uh, to meet him. But regardless, there were two things I wanted to, to talk to him about and I, I had to pick one. One possibility was to show him an iPod playlist that I made uh, consisting of his songs, both solo and with the monkeys. And uh, I called it weird Nesmith stuff. Well, well, not stuff. There's another S word that it's in there. And the thing is, it's my favorite playlist, even though, again, I mentioned before, the Beatles are my favorite group. But my weird Nesmith stuff playlist is my favorite that I end up listening to most of the time. And the reason I say weird is because the thing about a lot of Mike's songs, both during the monkeys and after the monkeys is a lot of them have kind of bizarre lyrics, but the songs are still brilliant. And a lot of his other ones, they have titles that have nothing to do with the song at all. Like for example, he has, he has a song called never tell a woman. Yes. Yet there's nothing in the song at all that has that phrase in it. In fact, the message of the song might be quite the opposite. It might actually be never tell a woman. No. And I, I remember they, the monkeys had this TV special called 33 and a third revolutions per monkey in 1969. They were contracted to do three specials for NBC and uh, long story short, uh, there's very good reason why after that special aired, NBC said, eh, actually, we don't need those other two TV specials. <laughs> it was pretty bad. But there's this one scene in it that my wife and I love, and it's a scene with Mike Nesmith, and he's basically singing a duet with himself with a split-screen technology, and it's really cool, and the, the song's really cool, and it's a typical Nesmith song. When we got the DVD of it, we, um, we wanted to skip right to that song, and the chapter names were all the names of the songs, and we realized, wait a minute, we don't know the name of the song. So we're looking through the names of the songs, uh, let's see, I'm a Believer, String for My Kite, uh, 
And then we see this one that's called Naked Persimmon. And we both said, all right, that's gotta be it. And sure enough, that's what it was. (laughs) And yeah, the word naked and the word persimmon do not appear anywhere in that song. But anyway, that, that's why I had that weird Nesmith stuff playlist, because I uh, the songs fit in one of those categories for the most part. So I'm thinking about it. He's saying, hey, he'll, he'll get a good kick of that, someone calling a playlist weird Nesmith whatever. But then another part of me said, yeah, but it might set him aback. So I told him a different story. And this is a story I'm going to tell right now. But I said, Mike, I take classes here at the Old Town School of Music all the time. And one of the classes I take frequently is a songwriting class taught by this wonderful teacher. Her name is Sue DeMell. And every one of her sessions, the second class, the homework she gives you is to take an existing song and write a new second verse to it, just as an exercise in getting to understand what a song is about. And one of the times I took the class, for the second homework assignment, I chose Mike Nesmith's Nine Times Blue, song that he recorded a lot of times with the Monkees and never got released until the first First National Band album. And it's a very short song. It only has two verses. He sings one verse, then kind of a chorus, then the second verse, then the chorus again, then the second verse again. So I wrote my own second verse, but I made the existing second verse the third verse, So when it came time to present in class, I took out my 12 string. I did the song and Sue, the teacher, uh, her name is Sue. That is, I didn't sue the teacher. Uh, as in, I did not take her to court. Absolutely not. But she said, I didn't know a monkey could write songs. And when I told Mike about that, he burst out laughing and just when she said that to me, I didn't know a monkey could write. I'm like, Oh my God, you're a songwriting teacher and you don't know about Michael Nesmith. Oh my goodness. But then she told me, well, I don't know the song, obviously, but it sounds like your verse definitely belongs in the song. It feels like you really understood what's going on in the lyrics. And then she said to me, I want you to go home and do this song again, but do it in three, four time, Uh, which those of you who've never heard nine times blue, it's two, four time. And here it is six years later, and I still can't do it in three, four time. It's, it's just, ah. And Mike laughed and he said to me, well, good luck with that because that's a very hard song to do in three, four time. And that was it. And he signed uh, the single. I told him, Hey, this is for my wife, Lisa. So he wrote to Sean and he somehow spelled my name correctly. Uh, S E A N, even though I didn't tell him that. So good on him. So when I came out of the classroom, showed it to Lisa, she said, Oh, he signed your name to it. But then she, she just laughed. She said, honestly, all I care is that it's got his signature on it. So yeah, now my wife has all four monkeys signatures on singles. And so we're very happy about that. And that's, uh, I know that this is going to be edited down, but I realize right now I just crossed the 20 minute mark. So yeah, that was quite a tangent. Um, but anyway, enough non gaming talk. This is a video game podcast and podcast about video games. Do I will, uh, will I do Jeez, I should put my words in the proper order. So why don't we talk about these obscure games I mentioned? Let's start with Plum Luck. But it won't go down. So whom do we have to thank for Plum Luck? 
why that would be Smitty B, an Atari Age user. He was working on a different project, a dungeon crawler, but in the midst of that project, he figured plum luck would be simple enough to do while the other project was in progress, so he came out with Plum Luck, which he programmed with 7800 Basic. Plum Luck was based on the 1990 LucasArts game Pipe Dream, which was released as part of Microsoft Entertainment Pack 2. And Pipe Dream itself was a clone of Pipe Mania, which was developed by a British video game maker called The Assembly Line. And that was released for Amiga in June of 1989. Just to give you a little bit about the gameplay of Pipe Mania, you have a play field that is composed of a grid that represents a sewer. And your job is to place a series of pipes into a sewer pipeline so that it'll contain a substance called flues, F-L-O-O-Z. And flues eventually starts flowing from a source. Um, by the way, flues is called goo in Pipe Dream. After a certain number of seconds, you will see that uh, the flues is going to start to flow. As the game progresses through each level, the flues starts flowing earlier and earlier and flows faster and faster. You are given a tile that contains a piece of pipe. It's going to be one of multiple types of pipe, and it could be oriented in uh, one of various directions, vertical, horizontal, curved, etc., and uh, you have no control over which type of pipe you get or the orientation of the pipe. Once you place the pipe in the sewer, you are presented with another piece that you have to lay down. And even if the piece of pipe you're given is of no use to you at the time, you still have to put it somewhere before you get another piece to place. But even if you have a useless piece of pipe that you have to lay down, you can actually replace it later on, provided that flues has not already started flowing through that particular piece that you're replacing. There's a minimum number of pipes that you have to place, and that minimum number changes from level to level to level to level. Hmm. Most people only stop at three. I stopped at four. Eh, oh well. I'm a rebel. But anywho, if you meet that minimum number of pipes, you advance to the next level or else the game is over. Oh, and as you progress through the games, there are going to be parts of the grid that are blocked. So you have to build your pipe network around some obstacles, I guess. And the farther you get in the game, the more dead ends you're going to come across with these obstacles. Pipe Dream actually became an arcade game in October 1990 and it was produced by Video System Company Limited of Kyoto, Japan. You don't see that very much. It has happened before in which a home video game would later become a uh, an arcade game. Off the top of my head, uh, Choplifter and Pitfall 2 come to mind, although I'm pretty sure the arcade Pitfall 2 is completely different from, say, the Atari Pitfall 2. But there were other ports of Pipe Mania. There was uh, one for the Sinclair ZX Spectrum, the Amstrad CPC, Acorn BBC Micro, Acorn Archimedes Atari ST, Scion 3A, which I believe was a uh, portable digital assistant, actually, and it was also out for the Sony PSP. And there were also other ports of Pipe Dream. There was one for the Sharp X68000, the NEC PC8801, the NES Super Famicom, Game Boy, Apple II GS, Macintosh, I believe it was uh, one of the uh, Macs that came out after Steve Jobs' return, so that would have been uh, early 2000s, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, 
Pipe Dream also came out on a computer called the SAM. That's an acronym, by the way, uppercase S, uppercase A, uppercase M, Coupe, the SAM Coupe, which is often referred to as a ZX Spectrum clone. There was also a uh, iOS port for Pipe Dream. Uh, I know because I downloaded it the day before I recorded this particular segment. And there's a 3D version of Pipe Dream for the Sony PlayStation. So that was a little bit of history behind the evolution, I guess, of Plum Luck, going back to its pipe mania roots. So let's take a look at the Atari 7800 version, shall we? The original release of Plum Luck was only a downloadable ROM posted by Smitty B on Atari Age on June 9th, 2017. Wasn't finished yet, there was no sound in the game, and there were plans to make some further changes. But the gameplay was as such. Uh, remember talking about the flues or the goo in Pipe Dreams, Pipe Mania? Well, this time in Plum Luck, it's called Slime, and it's a bright green color. The slime comes out after 30 seconds on the first level, and then with each additional level, one second is taken off from that delay. The most difficult it becomes is five seconds. The sewer has an entrance on the left and a drain on the right, and you have to lay the pipes so that they bridge that entry point and the drain so that the slime flows right through down to the drain without spilling anything outside of the pipes. On the right side of the screen, there are some statistics. There's the high score, your score, the stage indicator, and the next four pipe tiles, I guess. The joystick controls the cursor, obviously. And Plum Luck actually makes use of both buttons on an Atari 7800-compatible controller. Button 1 acts as the start button, and also during the game it speeds up the cursor. Button number 2 places the current tile wherever you have the cursor. If you hold down the select button on the console, the slime flows faster. And uh, this is a good way to speed up the game when you finish building your pipe network so you don't have to wait forever for the slime to finish up its flow from the entry to the drain. You get one point added to your score for each section of pipe that the slime flows through and a 10-point bonus for completing a stage. And your score maxes out at 9,999. Um, as far as I know, nobody's gotten near that high yet. But regardless, uh, Smitty B was kind of struggling over figuring out an optimal difficulty level, some way to make it not too easy, not too hard. But on June 11th, Smitty B posted a revised version of the game in which the slime doesn't start flowing until 120 seconds, two minutes after the stage starts. Each additional stage deducts 5 seconds from that delay, with 30 seconds being the minimum, at which point you're at stage 18. On June 13th, a new version, and this time with selectable levels of difficulty on the intro screen. Once again, Slime starts 30 seconds after the stage starts, but it only moves half as fast as it did before. The sandbox difficulty gives you a completely blank map with no obstacles in the way and no time limit. You just lay your pipe work, and you actually have to start the flow of slime yourself by using the select button on the console. That was a long sentence, wasn't it? Hmm. 
Anyway, if you try the simple difficulty level, you get just one stage that repeats over and over and over, and there are no blockers, no time limit. Normal difficulty, the map of the sewer changes. There'll be some blockers here and there as you progress. And at expert level, well, expert was only a selection at this point. It was no different from normal yet. But on July 2nd, there was a new version posted, and now there were some basic sound effects. There were 20 maps, and the 20th map was just a bonus map, and it was in the shape of an exclamation point. And uh, that map was already completed for you. It's basically just an excuse to give you some free points. Think of... Uh, Say that free parking space on a Monopoly game that people made up their own rules and threw some money in the middle of the board for anyway. Man, I wish that was real life. You find a free parking space and you get like 500 bucks or something. Anyway, in this new version of Plum Luck, in simple mode, the slime starts after 60 seconds. and You don't get a bonus for completing the stages. In normal mode, the slime starts after 30 seconds and you get a 10-point stage completion bonus. And on expert mode, the slime still starts after 30 seconds, but you get a 20-point stage completion bonus. But Sean, there's got to be a catch if you're getting double the completion bonus. And <laughs> yes, there is. Indeed. This time, the slime flows twice as fast as in the other modes. So there's your trade-off right there. Smitty B had planned that that would be the last revision of Plum Luck so that he could go back to working on his dungeon crawler, which, by the way, as of this recording, is still in progress under the title Spire of the Ancients. So that is Plum Luck. And uh, in my opinion, the game is challenging. It's fun. And I can't wait for that thing to come out on a cartridge. I would love to have one. I mean, yeah, I can load it up on my Mateos cart and play it that way, but, you know... <laughs> I like to support people. So um, anyway, it's, it's a very interesting variation on the previous pipe games. I highly recommend it. I have just one, one complaint, and that's the bright green text. It's very hard to read against that uh, silvery gray background. But other than that, I think it's a great game. I think it's wonderful. So that's my opinion. Let's see if anybody else has any opinions on this or tubes, actually. A lot of you listening might be saying, Tubes, huh? Well, what is this Tubes? I've never heard of it. Well, Tubes is actually one of the earliest homebrews to ever happen for the Atari 7800. It was developed by Bruce Tomlin, and he wrote it in 6502 assembly language. And uh, assembly language, yeah, I'm not even going to pretend to explain how that works. Uh, I know it involves registers, and it's very cryptic. And, uh, I'll, I'll quote Bruce, actually, in the uh, discussion thread on Atari Age. He said, you try to write a pipe tracing algorithm in 6502 Assembler. It ain't easy. <laughs> but the game was first brought about on uh, July 4th, 2004. But the game, according to Bruce, really started to come about in his mind on July 4th, 2004. He said that he envisioned kind of a combination of Tetris and Pipe Dream. And on Halloween that year he first posted a playable version of the game on Atari Age, but he implied that at that point it was just a proof of concept, really. As for how Tubes played, well, it was basically a Tetris game, really. But instead of the four-block pieces, you had single tiles falling, and in those tiles there was some kind of a section of tube similar to what you would have in 
pipe dream, pipe mania, plum luck, whatever, except that the tiles could actually be rotated. You use a fire button and rotate the tile. The tube could be curved, straight, plus shaped, whatever. And the tube might actually not even take up the entire width of the tile. It might actually take up part of the tile and act as simply an ending of the tube, a cap, if you will. The object of tubes was basically these blocks that are falling, these tiles that are falling, line them up so that you build a network of tubes that will naturally terminate. All the open tubes must be capped. And when you do have a complete network, the tiles that make up that network disappear. And the tiles on top of those just fall down. And a network, if uh, this, that's my term, by the way, not Bruce's, but the network has to contain at least two tiles. You can have as few as two. One tile being an end cap and a tile next to it being an end cap and they're both kind of facing each other. Or the tube network can go on for several tiles on several rows. There may be a bomb dropped here and there, and uh, those will help you clear some space. At this point, there wasn't any scoring yet, but two players could play at a time. One player on the left side of the screen and another on the right. Bruce was thinking of narrowing the play field a little bit so he could allow for a score display and stuff like that. Many users on Atari Age found that the game was a bit on the easy side, and uh, Bruce kind of blamed it on what he called exits on the bottom row. They were basically end caps. I guess what you could have done was just land a end cap piece on one of those uh, spaces on the bottom row and instantly clear a couple of tiles, making it a little bit too easy. That's the way I think about it, at least. And uh, Bruce was planning to adjust the game so that more bombs would fall and more cross-shaped tiles. He was thinking of adding more of those, too. And there was a new version posted on November 3rd. Skipping several months ahead to April 5th, 2005, there was another new version posted. Instead of bombs just kind of coming out at random, you now actually had to call the bomb into play by pushing the joystick up. And it was around this time that my Pie Factory podcast co-host, Jimmy G, posted a link to an arcade game called Sparks. And he said, Tubes looks kind of like this game Sparks. Now, Sparks, S-P-A-R-K-Z, was an arcade game produced by Atari in 1992, but it never got past the prototype stage. Bruce said he was going to get the ROM for MAME and see if he could use it to get some ideas. He also found a similar arcade game called, well, I don't know how it's pronounced, but it's spelled C-A-C-H-A-T, Kachat or something. But uh, Taito made that game in 1993. But anyway, August 7th that year, 2005, Bruce posted yet another new version of Tubes. Now, there was scoring implemented. If you used a bomb, you would score one point for every tile that that bomb blew up, with a maximum of seven points if a bomb fell into a pit that was surrounded by a bunch of tiles. Now, the scoring for eliminating tiles that complete a pipe network, they were done in triangle number style, meaning 1, 3, 6, 10, 15, 21, etc. Basically, the first number is a 1, then for the second number you add 2, then 3, then 4, etc. If you cleared a pipe network that was actually two separate paths joined together, each path would have its own little scoring mechanisms instead of using all of those uh, tiles, I guess, to make a single large triangle number pattern. The score display on the screen would allow up to five digits, but due to the way that the score was handled in the programming, 
it should theoretically roll over once you get 65,535 points. Two days later, Bruce posted another new version, and this time you were limited to three bombs, but you earn an additional bomb for every 100 points you score. And that was the last version. According to Bruce, the reason he stopped updating the game was he kind of reached the limitations of programming he could do for the Maria chip. And uh, in case you don't know what the Maria chip is, that is the chip that's responsible for the graphics on the 7800. So Bruce moved on to do a version for the Sega Genesis, which had the same gameplay, same scoring, and the same controls as the 7800 version, uh, except because the control is a little bit different, you would use button C to rotate. But the project was abandoned in 2008. So there you go. That's tubes for the Atari 7800. And uh, you know what? Let's hear what other people have to say. You know, when I put out a call for feedback for tubes and plum luck, I wasn't expecting to hear anything back because these games aren't the most well-known of the 7800 homebrews. Well, I was surprised. I was actually wrong. On Atari Age, I heard from Sean, spelled S-H-A-W-N, who says, Tubes is a cool mix of Tetris and Pipe Dream. The programmer lost interest in working on it for the 7800 long ago, unfortunately. He was going to pick it back up on the Sega Genesis, but if I recall, neither got finished or released in the end. Shame, too, because this game is awesome, no matter which console it would have ended up coming out on. Yeah, thank you for your response on that, Sean. And I feel like I'm talking to myself. Good grief. I, I should call myself Sterling, or, or, or better yet, use my handle, Dauber. But anyway, um, it really is a shame, because it, it, I just remember... I think it was like 1989 when Spectrum Holobyte came out with all these Tetris games. They had regular Tetris. Uh, there was, uh, I think it was called Welltris. And then there was, a, there was a weird variation called Faces, Tris 3, in which you actually have to uh, arrange the falling blocks so that they actually form complete faces. And I, I don't think I ever played that one, but this would have been an, an interesting variation to include with that series as well. Rev Eng says, Plum Luck is a great little jewel of an action puzzle game, perfect for short bursts of mental challenge. It's unpretentious, featuring more zen than bling. It has a plain but attractive game screen built out of textured blocks. The interesting gameplay is what's front and center. Tubes is a very interesting concept by one of the original 7800 hackers. It's a shame it wasn't developed further because the last work in progress release has a lot of promise. Yeah, another lament about tubes not being finished. Yeah, yeah, that is a shame, isn't it? And I know what it's like to lose interest in a project, but man, when it's so far ahead and it could be infuriating for the person involved, much more so than the uh, people who would have benefited from it. But wow, I actually like the look of Plum Luck. I think it's actually kind of neat. Uh, I think the graphics were pretty competitive, what was on the market at the time of the 7800's original release, but that's just one guy's opinion. I mean, yeah, the main thing is the playability, of course, but still, I, I really do think that uh, Smitty B did a great job with the graphics. And, oh, speaking of Smitty B, he chimed in as well. He says, firstly, I want to say that I'm really digging your podcast. Well, uh, Smitty B, if you want to say it, then say it. I mean, come on. Sincerely, though, thank you, though. <laughs> 
He says, listening to other people's stories has helped me get through some difficult coding sessions where I would otherwise have rather printed out the source code, shredded it, than danced around a bonfire of the remains, shrieking madly to expunge the bugs and glitches that could only be supernatural in origin. Um, Smitty B, a video where it didn't happen. Okay, so he goes on to say, I hope to go back to plum luck at some point, but I would choose to start from scratch now. When I first started programming for fun, again with 7800 Basic, I had two ideas for a simple project to start with, the first being a Pipe Mania clone, and the other being a first-person dungeon crawler, so of course I chose the dungeon crawler. When people suggested I keep working on the 3D maze demo I posted, I did just that. But I was still learning what the 7800 was capable of and how to actually program it so after a few months of slow struggle, I was getting burnt out on the whole thing and needed a change. I went back to the Pipe Mania idea and that became Plum Luck. I do own the original Amiga version of Pipe Mania, but I mainly based things on the Windows 3.1 Pipe Dream, hence the gray and green color scheme and simplistic look. Not having a Mateos cart at the time, I had no way of testing this on real hardware, so I was oblivious to how gray and green is just too difficult to see on the noisy, blurry, and generally disgustingly bad RF signal the 7800 outputs. I deliberately didn't copy the gameplay exactly because I feel that if I did, it wouldn't be mine. It would be somebody else's game that I just plagiarized. That's why the goal of each stage isn't really to build a really long pipe that doesn't go anywhere, but to actually connect an input to an output. I consider what's there to be complete because I realized that I was sinking all my time into plum luck and not into what would become Spire of the Ancients, so I quickly gave it an ending, made sure it was playable, then dropped it as fast as I could. I have so many projects on hold until Spire of the Ancients is done, but I will certainly have to go back to plum luck and rewrite it to be how I imagined at the time, with different situations like plumbing the coolant into a nuclear reactor before it melts down, or completing a railway before the train comes along, and a mascot character, Plum Bob, throwing the pieces on the board and commenting on your progress. The experience I gained making Plum Luck really boosted my understanding of the console, and I hope people get some enjoyment out of what essentially became a learning exercise for me. <laughs> Smitty B, thank you for your comments there. And as you heard, there are people who are getting enjoyment out of it, absolutely. And... Smitty B addressed my complaint here. I guess he sees the same thing where the gray on green just doesn't really work. And it has, I don't think it has anything to do with the RF signal on the 7800 because, well, my 7800 has the AV hack. So I'm using actually RCA ports. And uh, even on my modern Samsung TV, which is what I usually use, it's still hard to see. It's just a pretty difficult color scheme, and uh, that's all. And I just love the um, enthusiasm that Smitty B seems to have here with uh, the projects he's doing. And man, I know what it's like to have so many projects in the works, especially when you have multiple interests, uh, because I'm a web developer for a living, but I also like to do it on the side for fun. So I have a couple of websites I'm trying to build, I, I'm trying to relearn how to program iOS apps. I started on a 7800 basic project, but I temporarily abandoned it. Uh, I have a lot of music that I'm in the middle of making. I have I have about 
I don't know, probably eight albums worth of music that I just started working on and I got no further than a minute in per tune. <laughs> so man, the, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. And if I move over to Atari.io, I was especially surprised to get feedback there because Plum Luck was pretty much exclusively an Atari age thing. But Justin, who's uh, the administrator at, uh, at Atari.io, says, I remember playing Tubes when Bruce Tomlin first showed it off in the fall of 2004. It's a simple looking game for the 7800, but kind of fun to pick up and play. For the longest time, there was hardly any 7800 homebrew development going on at all. The 2600 homebrew community was on fire, still is actually, with amazing new releases during 1999 through 2004, but hardly anything for the 7800. I remember Senso DX from Heaven of Takwart, uh, sorry about uh, that pronunciation if I'm getting wrong, being the only 7800 homebrew that I was aware of. It was a Simon game that was in its early stages and looked rudimentary, but had a nice title screen. Then suddenly people started figuring out how to program the 7800 properly and boom, 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 some great hardware started to drop like Beef Drop, Bonk, and many others. Tubes came around this time and I was thrilled to see a new 7800 game available. And more importantly, I was happy that more and more people were trying their hands at developing something for the 7800, which I knew could really benefit from a vibrant homebrew community. I like Tubes. I've confused it before with Shunting Puzzle, which was a really well-done demo for ColecoVision by PKK on Atari Age. Willie did a review of Shunting Puzzle for the ColecoVision here. He puts a uh, link to that, and I'll add that to the show notes. Tubes looks and feels a little more like something I would expect to see on the ColecoVision too, and I tend to see it more as a really well-done demo along the lines of Shunting Puzzle too. Tubes was really something special, though, and Bruce Tomlin should be proud of his work. I have a big soft spot for puzzle and strategy games, especially on 8 and 16-bit systems. The 7800 could have really done well with more Tetris-style puzzle games, and I wish Atari had continued down this path and extended the shelf life of the 7800 a bit more with some cool puzzle games. Speaking of puzzle games, I haven't done much with Plum Luck, but the tiled pattern reminds me a lot of Chip's Challenge, possibly my all-time favorite puzzle game. I may be in a minority in this, but I can't get enough Chips Challenge on Atari Lynx. I think it's brilliant. I used to play that game all night during the summer as a kid. No cheats, no codes, just playing it straight through. Seeing that tile layout on Plum Luck makes me really want to see Chips Challenge come to the 7800. Imagine if Atari had done that in 1989. Plum Luck seems like a fun puzzle game, though. Like Tubes, it's simple but fun. And Justin, thank you. Yeah, and simple and fun is exactly what you want in a video game, really. At least one of those old-style video games, like your modern games that kids these days are playing. Uh, maybe not necessarily simple, but fun. Like, I don't think Fortnite is necessarily simple, uh, uh, considering how much time people have um, invested in that thing. Um, yeah, um, fun, maybe. Simple, probably not. Probably not. And I'm not familiar with Chip's Challenge, but I'm looking at the screenshots on Atari Age right now, and yeah, I can totally see that. And now i got to try that game. I have to try that. I don't have a link, so I'll have to emulate it. Um, Justin, thank you again for taking the time to send some feedback on that. And in my email, there is a feedback message from Eugenio, who says, Hello, Sean. Hello, Eugenio. I hope all is well. I'm doing much better from the surgery and I'm back to work. Awesome. 
just being careful about lifting anything over 10 pounds. I was discharged by the surgeon today and told I only have to keep with the restrictions for two more weeks. After that, I'm back to normal. Anyhow, how about I share with you my feedback on two games for today's episode of the podcast? Number one, Plum Luck. This is what I like to call a plumbing video game because you have to create a continuous path for water, or slime, to flow from point A to point B. In the case of Plum Luck, a game by Atari Age member Smitty B, we are dealing with slime. The player has 30 or 60 seconds, depending on the difficulty selected, before the slime starts to flow within the pipes. So that's the time the player has to assemble the pipes from the exit point to the entrance point, wherever those are and whatever maze you're on. The time is not constant, however, as the time interval before the slime starts to flow is reduced by 5 seconds for each stage the player is able to complete. So, how does the player assemble the pipes? Well, there are random tiles that appear on the right side of the screen, each with a different type of pipe piece. These tiles are organized from left to right, with the leftmost piece being the next one the player can use. Under this area, you'll see an X for each level you manage to complete, with a maximum of 20 levels. Plum Luck is a fun and addicting game. It does have three difficulty levels, Simple, Normal, and Expert. The time, bonus, and speed of the slime varies depending on the level, and uh, this is a good thing if you want to learn the game. The game has simple sound effects, and the graphics are not the most sophisticated you'll see in the 7800, but they are nicely done and work well. I don't know if Smitty B will ever return to the game to add more features to it, but the version that is available is pretty good as is. I recommend giving it a try. Tubes. Okay, I will admit that I knew nothing of this game until you asked for feedback on it. I downloaded the binary to give it a try, and I did scratch my head a little. A Tetris game, but with pipes? How was I supposed to clear the pieces? After some trial and error, I realized I had to complete the pipes using the falling pieces so that there would be a continuous pipe that would connect with the openings on the sides. I was not able to play it for long, but I thought it was interesting. Unfortunately, the game was never completed. It has no sound effects to speak of. The graphics are clean and rendered in just a few colors. The control works well, and it does what you'd expect. Fire rotates the pieces, joystick moves the pieces horizontally, and accelerate the fall if you pull down. I know a Genesis version was also made, but I have not tried that one yet. Definitely a game that had a lot of potential. Um, and as usual, Eugenio ends... Going to the Final Frontier Gaming, Eugenio. Thank you, Eugenio. It was great to hear from you. Glad that the ordeal you've been going through for a long time is finally wrapping up. Uh, can't wait till you're back to normal. You said it all. I don't know what else to add to it. Uh, as for whether Smitty B will ever return, well, you might have a hint now after hearing uh, what he had to say. And Tubes, man, I hear you about not being able to get very far. Tubes is super extremely difficult just trying to get that alignment going trying to get those pipes connected and everything from falling blocks it's insane it's craziness i i don't i don't know what to do about it but yet i want to keep going back to it over and over and over so um that that's what i have to say about it uh and, um, Hey, you know what? That's, uh, that's our feedback for this episode. So, um, yeah, I can only, I'm, I can only think of an awkward way to end this segment. So it's over. <music> so 
So that's our look at Plum Luck and Tubes. I keep saying our, but I'm the only host of this podcast, at least for now, and probably for the remaining history of this podcast. But I do thank you all for listening to the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, and I also thank the following people in reverse alphabetical order by uh, last name or something, I guess. A thank you to Richard Valdez and PJ Steele and New Balance Phoenix stores, Richard Grounds, Great Offender, Jimmy G, Kyle Etter, Adladen Controllers, and Airshack. Why am I thanking them? Well, because they were kind enough to support this podcast monetarily via patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash homebrew78. And if you would like to become a supporter financially of this podcast, please go to that website that I just rattled off. If you wish not to support this podcast financially, then I guess either don't go to that website or go to that website, but don't actually uh, sign up to donate. Uh, Anyway, other website you can go to is homebrew78.fab4it.com. Fab4it is spelled F-A-B. And then the numeral four and then it.com. Why would you go there to look at the show notes that I mentioned? You can reach me via email at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. My Twitter handle is homebrew78 and my YouTube channel is homebrew7800. For the next episode, I'm going to go crazy here. There are four games by Franco Dragon as of this recording that have not gotten coverage on this podcast. And I'm going to wipe them all out in one episode. See how that goes. See if I can do that in two weeks. Especially because I'm very curious about these games. I've yet to try them. I've yet to see them. The games that I'm talking about are The Big Burrito, Crazy Tank, Cubicle Chaos, and Hearty Man Slapper. I'm especially curious about that last one. Anyway... Thank you again for listening to this podcast, everybody. And I encourage you, nay, implore you to please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve so that they can help us enjoy the Atari 7800 for many more years to come. Talk to you again um, in about a fortnight. <laughs>